wicked, wicked fly. This is your summer. That means Six Flags in the taste of an ice-cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, yes. real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. Six Flags and Coca-Cola, come make it yours. Visit sixflags.com slash coke to save up to $20 on passes, plus daily tickets starting at $34.99. This is Karen with newclevelandradio.net, and it is time for Avoid the Maze. And, you know, all of us are on this path, and we think we know where we're going. At least I thought I did when I was a young kid. Uh, I had this great picture of my future, and... Some of it uh, came through and other areas, uh, no, not so much. Um, so to be honest with you, I never became Miss America, never had a ton of money, um, but I have found contentment and happiness. And when I was looking for a guest for today's show, I came across a bio of David Edwards on Podmatch. And as many of you know, I talk about Podmatch quite a bit because um, it's a podcaster's um, dating site, so to speak. We find uh, a lot of our commonality. And when I read David's bio, I thought, you know, we really haven't talked about how we can be happy, maybe with a little less money or maybe find a way to make a little more money. And David's written a book, and I don't know if he has all the secrets in the world, but I hope you have some secrets that you can share with us um, so that those of us who want to live our best life can learn to do so, maybe not with as much money in the bank as we think we need. So welcome, David. Hey, awesome. Thanks. Thank nice you. to be here, Karen. So tell us a little bit about your background. So when we start talking money, people can identify a little bit better. Yeah. So I've, I've uh, worked in healthcare for 35 years. Oh. And um, I, I've worked, I, I don't know where to begin this sometimes, but I, I started at what's called a federally qualified health center or a community health center in the Seattle metro area. And it's kind of funny because we served a lot of migrant farm workers and you don't think of Seattle and migrant farm workers, right? right. We think of Microsoft or Boeing or something like that, but uh, fish, I mean, <laughs> whatever you think of when you think of Seattle on the, wherever, you know, your listener or viewer is from, but uh, anyways, not migrant farm workers, but we, had a lot of migrant farm workers who had then come into the city, right? And they'd settled and they were doing entry-level jobs and different things like that sure. and landscaping and, and whatnot. And then we also had sites that were outside of the city. And so it was kind of this mixed bag and, and it was a wonderful place to work. Um, you know, I'd never worked in anything in healthcare before. And um, it was really my, you know, kind of my start of that. And I did it for six years, which was great. So I graduated from college um, and they promoted me to be like a business manager from an accounting clerk, uh, like a bookkeeper kind of a role. Sure. 
Um, and then I did pretty well, evidently, because they doubled in size. And um, instead of losing a little bit of money, <laughs> they made a little bit of money. Uh, and so then as they grew, they made me the first finance director, kind of like a CFO. Okay. And, you know, we tripled in size. I was working 50, 60 hours a week. Um, I lived in the north end of Seattle because my wife was from up there. Um, we'd had our first daughter. Um, I commuted an hour and a half to South Seattle where our office wow. was. <laughs> and, um, and, and then an hour and a half home, right? And then we were so busy, we were starting to uh, build a nursing home. And um, we had, you know, we kept adding sites, kept going further north, and then we were going, starting to go south. And, and, um, and I realized that, well, I'd never made my values explicit, which is something I talk about in my book. In fact, it's the first chapter. But I had this vague sense that I'm away from home, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. And, and we're just making enough to live because I didn't make a big salary or anything. Even for back in 1989, um, when I was like going, you know what, I love what I do. So I, did, I wasn't miserable at work, Sure, but it was consuming. And it was what was needed because we were growing so rapidly and there was always so much to do kind of in the finance area so that we could support, you know, opening new services and opening a new site so we could serve more people and help more people. Um, I think like 80% of our patients um, lived on less than 200% uh, of poverty. Wow. And so just to give us a kind of a, a current, you know, like I think poverty today for a single person is like 12,000 a year. So they were living, you know, like in today's dollars on less than $24,000, a year, which isn't a lot of money in most right. places, right? And so um, anyways, but I realized that this wasn't okay because I wasn't seeing my daughter grow up and that simply wasn't okay. And I loved my wife. I still love my wife 37 years later, but, <laughs> um, and um, well, it wasn't 37 from them, but anyways, right. we've been married 37 years. Well, I've been married 30. Uh, well, anyways, it doesn't matter. So anyway, so I, I decided to leave. I resigned because I couldn't see any way to work a lot less. You know, there was no such thing as telecommuting back then. Right. And I thought, you know, I've loved healthcare. It's been really interesting, but um, I'm going to try something different. You know, maybe I'll have to work less hours or whatever. Um, you know, and I was a young guy still. I was really quite young. And, and so I went to work for the cable company. And, you know, talk about different. It's completely different, right? Our mission, I thought, was to provide good cable. But I realized as an accounting manager with a room full of accountants, we were doing the books for a $500 million division of a multi-billion dollar cable company. And um, I realized that really what we were to do was to make the bosses a lot of money. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that was the number one job that we had. And, and I thought, you know, all I do is count the money. I don't make any money. 
Um, but it seemed like we got into trouble when things weren't going well. And, you know, when you had a good quarter, you know, we were all heroes. But I mean, anyway, and I realized after not very long, less than a year, I thought, you know, I'm still working hard, not like I was before, because that was not okay. But um, I didn't like what we were doing. I didn't like the reason we existed, frankly. And it was making me kind of unhappy. And so I thought, so this was a moment of introspection, right, of kind of self-awareness. For me to work like this, I have to really believe in what we're doing and that it's important for society, for, you know, people genuinely are better off. And then there's nothing wrong with cable, right? We like having TV shows on cable and whatnot. And so, you know, getting our bandwidth and for internet these days so we can listen and watch our podcasts and all that stuff so there's nothing wrong with it but it did not resonate with me and so I went back and and then I really spent the next almost 30 years um, working in elder care working at other community health centers I worked in tribal health in Alaska I did quite a long stint at, at a heart institute which you're thinking, I don't know, a heart institute, right? Um, But it was an amazing place. (laughs) It really, you know, the leadership was aligned. Um, We had to make money. I was a CFO, so a chief financial officer. Um, But it wasn't for the money, right? Money wasn't why we existed. Because every time we made a little money, what we did was we did something else for our patients, right? We did something else for the community. And so I was able to be creative. We had these partnerships that were wonderful. The financing became interesting, which was fun for me on the finance side. And it was, I love the people I worked with. It was, it was amazing. And I'd still be working there today, except world was changing, right? So right. we were changing as well, but the world was changing in a different direction. And in the healthcare world, what was happening was cardiology was increasingly about the money and ran by hospitals, right? I mean, the hospitals to have the the hospital, but the physicians were independent. Right. Um, And just the whole world was changing there and it became impossible to continue to be a nonprofit um, that was making good money, frankly, um, and that other people wanted that money. (laughs) That's the, the short version of it. And because we were dependent upon the graciousness, if you will, of the cardiologists and the surgeons and the hospitals to be this kind of nonprofit, we thought of ourselves as Switzerland in health. Ah, wonderful. Okay. And, you know, and so um, it became impossible because they wanted the money. Not that we were making a lot of money. We, I mean, we were a pretty small organization, but anyways, it was very clear to me. So the CEO had left and I became the chief operating officer. And I, I, I'm going to say this, I I had a vision for where we could go that would allow us to get out of what was making all the money, frankly, and let them have it. But we had enough reserves that we could sustain ourselves and grow our research and our community partnerships and our education that we were doing. Um, and let them, you know, do the cardiac care, and that's fine, Um, but it didn't resonate with the board, and so I ended up leaving 
just before they kind of dissolved and got sure. split into various different uh, groups and hospitals. And, uh, and that was unfortunate, you know, but that kind of stuff happens, right? Because that outside change, we don't control it, right? It's going to happen. And so you got to be aware of it, you got to plan for it, you got to, you got to recognize, in my book, I talk about we have three patterns that are, can be very important for us. One of them is sometimes you got to zoom in, right? You got to look at yourself. You got to say, what am I going to do right now in my current situation and my circumstances? And you got to focus more on it. Maybe you've been kind of going along on cruise control for a while and you really haven't been very aware of what you're doing, who you've become or not become, what the expectations are, right? So you got to zoom in. And you got to really focus on yourself right. or your immediate circle of influence. That can be really important. Another pattern is to zoom out. So sometimes you just don't have what it takes, right? You cannot do what you need to do with your own little circle of influence. So you got to reach outside yourself. And it might be to outside like a podcast, right? So for some information, for some inspiration, for some hope some knowledge, you know, some skills. Um, it might be for some outside resources, right? So right. you can't get it in your community. So you got to reach outside. You got county, federal, state level, even national level, right? Nonprofits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so sometimes you got to zoom out to get additional resources. And then sometimes, like in this instance, you've got to zoom away. <laughs> you know, you just can't stay where you're at. Right. And I was able from that situation, we went through a pretty challenging time for a few years. Um, we tried to stay local, but I just couldn't find work that was going to kind of keep me excited uh, and pay the bills. We learned some really critical lessons about money management because we kept making more and more money for like 11 years. And all of a sudden, you know, there was no money. <laughs> and Many of us have been there. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so um, we found ourselves necessary to zoom away. And, and I, we had a wonderful experience. We went to Alaska and I worked in tribal health. And so this was really where I kind of was getting back to my first roots. And in tribal health, it was all about you as an individual. And so Karen, you know, there's good, you know, there's good and bad and strengths and weaknesses as there always is, right? Sure. But one of the beautiful things about tribal health is they looked at you, Karen, as a whole person. You have a cultural aspect of a personal, you have physical, you have mental, you have spiritual, right? We have all these various domains. There's you as an individual, as a person in a family, perhaps in a community. And so you have all these domains but we try to look at you as a whole person within the context of all these various domains sure. that you've got. And, and it was really a beautiful experience in that regard. So we had a little hospital. We had lots of outpatient services, everything from eyeglasses to physical therapy, to primary care, to oral health, to mental health, to, I mean, we had a sweat lodge, you know, so it was a very broad scope of services and it was really wonderful for about four years. Um, and then we decided we needed to go back to the lower 48. Um, anyways, uh, and, and then I really spent the next 10 years or so focusing on that idea 
of you as a whole person in an integrated kind of whole person primary care context. And I was able to be a part of some wonderful movements in Oregon at the time. And I found myself in 2018 in this very favorable circumstance. I was the CEO of a rural community health center. Um, we'd been quite successful. Um, we were growing. We had improved our quality. So consistently, we were like the best quality of anybody in our region. Um, we had eliminated disparities in health outcomes between our minority and majority populations. Um, we had a wonderful staff that we were working with, and we'd embarked on creating a new health center because we'd outgrown the original one. And we had built a couple of more that were, you know, in other areas. Um, but it was time to replace that original health center. Okay. And we were thinking about it saying, okay, we have this wonderful model that puts Karen as the patient as the center of the care team. You're not this passive participant. You are in fact the captain of the care team. And I had this, as we were designing the building using really cool stuff like um, allopath, no. Well, I can't remember the name. It just flew out of my head. So it doesn't matter, I guess, right? So we were using these wonderful principles to design the building to make it this amazing, easy to navigate, kind of takes your breath away in a positive way that relaxes you as soon as you walk in the building. Wow. So we avoid that stress that we almost always feel when we're go going to the doctor or the dentist or the therapist or the health coach or the community health worker, or all this team of, of wonderful folks that we built. And we, and I had this first epiphany and it was, and this was kind of the beginning that led to my book was that unless we can help you to fulfill this role as the captain of the care team, then we will vastly limit our improvement in the care that we're providing, the experience that our patients have, and the success they have in managing their own health care, right? right? And I started talking to this wonderful multidisciplinary team that we created and saying, well, what does that mean to you? What do you think those skills are? And it really came down to change. How do we as individuals manage change, both the change that goes on inside us, you know, this personal change, personal development, if you will, as well as keep up with the change that's going on swirling, if you will, and out of our control around us. And if we could help people successfully navigate, and in fact, be in charge of the change that they can control, and to be adaptive to the change that they can't control, we would in fact help them be that captain of the care team. And as we thought about it and studied it more, really by extension to become the captain of your entire life. And so my second epiphany was that I was studying change models. You'd think change is a simple thing that somebody or some committee would say, these are the five stages of change and this is how you do it, right? It's not that simple because yeah. we're talking about human beings, right? right. So we're common a lot of things in common but we also have a lot of things that are unique and so different ideas you know um the trans theoretical model of change is a very common one with a big fancy name the uh some wonderful authors wrote a book called 
um, what was that book called? Leading Change, perhaps, right? Talking change as a community. Um, we have, anyways, different people with different ideas and how this happened. And so I was kind of noodling, if you will, as we were working away on these ideas. And what I realized is because I used to be a CFO for a long time, right? So I built a spreadsheet. That's kind of how I organized my thoughts. And, and I lined up these change models and the various steps that they had people going through. And they all had strengths and weaknesses, you know, and interesting elements. Right. But what was common, this was the second epiphany between all of them, was at the core of every change model, at the very beginning of it, was this idea of personal or intrinsic motivation. And so without motivation, we cannot change. We will not change. Right. And we need other things as well, but it's the foundation to any successful change process that we might go through, through internal change or to deal with the external, both of them. And so I had a serious disagreement with my board and I ended up leaving that job, which was very unfortunate. Another, you know, one of those challenging moments, but I had some time on my hands. I spent the next two years researching and say, well, what is intrinsic motivation and how do we apply it? Because I spent most of my career serving people with more challenges, perhaps more barriers to getting things done, to having the lives that they want to have. Um, I wanted to really focus on making this approachable to really average everyday people, probably those making less than say median income, what's, you know, about 70,000 a year these days. And so um, I spent two years researching and writing. I tried to start a little business around these ideas, just literally a month or two before the pandemic hit, which kind of tor torpedoed that. Um, and I eventually, last year, I thought, you know, I've got all this stuff. I've got all these ideas. And I really hadn't put it together in a way that was organized and that kind of approachable idea that I wanted to have. Um, and so I decided I'm going to write a book about it. And that's going to force me to organize this. And what I did was then in the process of writing the book, I realized there are these principles that I didn't create, but that other people have identified and they've provided some tools, um, tips, tricks, techniques, right? The T's, I call them the T's, right? right? Which is 99% of what we find out on the internet, right? Just all these, how do I do this? How do I get that done? How do I do this, right? It's, it's the how do I implement things? But what I wanted to do was not a book of tips and tricks and techniques, not that there's anything wrong with those, but I wanted to talk about the principles first, these foundations on which the tips and the tricks and the techniques all of a sudden become powerful. They have context that we can put them into a place that makes sense and we can have additional benefits. And so as it just turns out, it just happened this way, there are 10 principles that underlie every single person's intrinsic motivation. And it doesn't matter if we're older or younger, if we're richer or poorer, if we're famous or not famous, if we're employed or not employed, if we have a lot of money in the bank or no money in the bank, if we have a master's degree or a PhD or barely a high school education, 
right? It doesn't make any difference. These principles apply to all of us, no matter our primary language, our culture, our upbringing, you know, good or bad, right? Any of these things, what we've done in the past, what we've not done in the past, we don't have to worry about any of those things because these principles apply to all of us universally, just like love or gravity or, you know, these are natural laws and principles. And these 10 principles, I mean, it was, it's been quite this revelatory experience for me. Um, anyways, so does that make sense? So far? I thought a lot of background, well, I'm sorry, but I think it helps us understand kind of to get here. Well, what I love about your journey um, is that so many of us have been on a journey or will be on a journey that we also believe that in the beginning, when we get that first job, uh, this is where I want to be. Yeah. And I'm going to take the next step and the next step in 50 years from now, I'll get the gold watch. Um, that probably dates back to my grandfather's when they came from um, Europe and they said, ah, I'm now in the, you know, the land of gold and I'm going to work hard and take care of my family. But we've changed quite a bit since then. And I think in the last couple of years, we've taken a huge change because prior to the pandemic, uh, many of us were working those ungodly hours like you were. Um, if they lived in a smaller community, they didn't have as much travel time. But even so, if you live in a real small community, sometimes you have to travel to a larger community to get the better job. Exactly. Um, and we are, we've all been going for the pot of gold and the pot of gold, no matter when you reach it, it still is further ahead. And I learned that when I was in corporate America, um, you know, my first year I was making okay money within two to three years on paper, I was making very good money, but we were still at the same point financially as we were before I had even started corporate America. And I remember asking my husband one day, what's going on here? And he looked at me and he said, like everybody else, we're living within our earning power. And I thought about it and it was like, you're right. We're replacing our cars every two years, even if we didn't have to. Um, when we wanted something new, um, instead of maybe going to the discount store where I went before, now I'm going someplace else. Um, those, were, those were things that I didn't see coming. When I left corporate America, we had to scale back. And I'll tell you for the first time, I wasn't unhappy about doing that. Yeah. Because I realized much like you, I loved what I was doing in corporate America. I hated the culture. Okay. And yeah. when the culture overtakes all the good that you're putting into it, I would come home at the end of the day and say, what did I accomplish? Yeah. And some of us can walk away. Others are going to keep beating their heads up against the wall. <laughs> but I think 
that if we could learn something from you, and I'm going to suggest that anybody out there listening, you know, read the book. You don't have to take it as gospel, but get some other ideas. Um, we don't have to be miserable making a dollar. You don't. That's very true. It's absolutely true. And it's really, to me, it's all about creating balance and alignment. Those are really the keys. You know, we think about how we operate as human beings. And um, as we think about corporate America, and it's really, it's really Western culture and how it's evolved right. and corporations have evolved. I've seen it over my work life. I mean, I go back to my early career and I started a little bit later, but not that much later than people like Jack Welch and George Soros, who is a, you know, a huge um, hedge fund manager. Um, and there was this raging debate when I started college in the early 80s, which was, what is the purpose of companies, right? And there was the camp which said companies exist to fulfill some purpose. And there was another camp that said, basically companies exist to make as much money for the shareholders as possible. And there was this debate going on and I loved reading you know, the business magazine. So Forbes and um, Barron's, which was a weekly business right. magazine. And um, um, what was the, anyways, there were you know, various people and it was all in the debate. We talked about it in my college classes a little bit. We're talking about corporate culture and finance and stuff like that. And unfortunately, I think it's very tragic for the world, for America, if we're living in America, but really for the world, um, that the we exist to make money for the shareholders became the more, not the only obviously, but the more dominant philosophy. And we see it in the decisions that corporations make. Instead of looking at human beings as human beings, they look at us as assets. Well, I can promise you I have an MBA and I've worked in business and finance for a long time and human beings are not assets. By definition, assets are things I can buy. They are things I can sell. And I recall we did away with slavery a long time ago, uh, at least mostly. <laughs> and Hopefully. So, Hopefully. And so, you know, um, we are not assets. So we're not assets. What are we? Um, I, I told you I worked at this Heart Institute. When we first started, we had cath labs, catheterization labs. Right. They were digital. They were some of the very first digital labs in the entire world in 1990 when we bought them. Literally, we had people come from all over the world to look at these amazing digital labs because it was so leading edge, right? It was high tech, very lots of cachet, very cool. Well, about five years into this experience, they were no longer really cool. They had better digital labs <laughs> and better technology. And I realized, you know, at a million and a half dollars a pop that we could replace these every like four or five years so that we kept up with technology right? The, what I call the medical arms race and other people call it the same thing. But, um, but I realized that that was not the source of value added. Really, it was the human beings that I had the privilege of working with and how we were helping them develop and evolve 
how they treated each other, right? So our culture, how they treated our customers, our patients, um, how they treated those that we partnered with. They could be suppliers, they could be partners in joint ventures that we had, or and we were doing some really fun stuff. But anyways, it was really people. And, that, and you know, I'm a little embarrassed. I'd been working for 15 years or so at that point to realize that it's not the stuff because I'd always been into the technology side and the computer side as it evolved and, and whatnot. It's really our human beings. And we're not assets. We are the sole or primary source of value added, but it, we're not assets. And so it's this change of mental model of, and I've really come to think of corporations, companies, organizations, whatever we use the term, right? What they are universally though, is a collection of individual human beings who have come together in order to accomplish some common or shared purpose. And we could be making great crackers. It could be having vehicles for people to drive. It could be that we change your oil so your engine doesn't seize up. It could be that we provide primary care or dental care or that we make people's hair nice, right? It could be all kinds of reasons that we exist because you know there's lots of needs that human beings have. Right. But all of our purposes exist around the needs of other human beings or the things that influence us, like the environment perhaps, or something like that. And so it's all about people. And so we are collections of people coming together in order to get something done that's important to us or that we think makes a difference. And so it's really about human beings and the principles that guide human success. Just like if we wanna fly, we don't take off on a plane. Well, you've gotta understand lift, You've got to understand acceleration, right? You've got to understand weather and air. There's basic principles, gravity, that if you don't comply with those things, you will not be successful in getting off the ground. Very similarly, in nature, human nature, there are principles that guide how successful we are. And what happens is when we try to ignore those principles we run faster and faster and faster we try to get more and more done we try to be more successful but we just can't quite get there it's always two steps ahead it's elusive and we wonder what in the heck is going on and what i have learned is that most of the time what's going on is that we've ignored the principles of human success and while there might be many of them i would suggest with some level of humility, because I didn't create these things, that these 10 principles in the book are in fact the foundations upon which we can build human success. And they range from our values, this idea of what's important to us and making those explicit, not something vague, like back in 1989, when I had this vague sense, something isn't right here. I'm not comfortable with this. I something's wrong with this picture. I'm out of whack, right? I'm out of balance here. To today, what made those values very explicit. I don't have to wonder about it anymore. It's not a vague thing. It's very specific. And so it's very actionable in that regard. And so we start with our values. It's like the roots at the base of a tree. 
It brings nutrients. It keeps us anchored as we try to grow as tall. And right, we want to perform. We want fruit. We want that end result of all the work, right? But when we build the roots and we build the trunk and it's strong and flexible, what happens is through the inevitable turmoils of life, when we've got strong roots and trunk, which is these 10 principles, we endure those turmoils of life without catastrophic failure, without becoming depressed to the point that we're dysfunctional, without having a breakdown, without kind of losing our sanity. Like, I mean, what is going on? I'm going to wear myself out, right? I mean, we have all these catastrophic things that happen when we ignore these foundations. But with them, we weather those storms more successfully. And we may have down, down times and better times because that's Sorry, that's the human condition, right. folks. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You but know, we weather them better, good and bad. Anyway, and so then there's principles of getting things done, and there's principles that balance that, which is how do we treat ourselves with kindness and compassion as we go through this, you know, struggle. And um, it's really quite a beautiful, it fills me with hope. It fills me with purpose as we consider these principles and we make them a part of our lives. Well, you've repeated my favorite word, which is called purpose. Because um, again, when I go back to corporate America, um, loving my job, hating the culture, the culture was killing me. Um, and one of the things that we used to do on a weekly basis, um, our team would get together every Friday and our, our manager would go around the room and one week it was, uh, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite this or that? And because I was so ingrained in the corporate model, I really wasn't living my life outside. I mean, I would go home to my family, but I was still, my brain was still working, okay? And so when they would ask me, what is your favorite I would look at them and go, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. And I really had a bad attitude because everybody else was talking about, oh, a movie they saw over the weekend or one they planned on seeing. And I remember one Friday walking out of there, my manager calling me back and she said, Karen, what's your problem? And I said, I don't know why you're doing all this. I do my job. I do it great. My students love me, and yet I come in here and I feel worthless. And she said, well, that's your problem, not mine. And I walked back to my office and I was in tears because I didn't know what she meant by that. It was yeah. like, no, it is your problem. I work for you. And it was within a short period of time when I realized this is not where I need to be. Yeah. Um, and so many of us go through that, whether it be work, relationships, um, the place that you're living, um, and we put up with it because we think we don't have other choices. There when you, you when you we develop, think, right? yep. But when we develop that purpose and we look outside, you know, stop thinking with the head sometimes and start thinking with the heart. Um, we become a different person and that different yeah. person is who we really want to be. There you go. 
It's a wonderful thing when we stop being the victim of our life and we start being the captain of our life. Right. Absolutely. So how can we find your book? I mean, come on, we've been talking about it now. So now we all have to go out and buy it. Well, I hope so. That would be marvelous. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not totally selfish. I mean, all the people that read the book, um, if you buy the book, it looks kind of like this. If people are watching, okay. if you buy the book and it sits on your shelf, it doesn't do much good for you. I'm really sorry. I'm not yep. that powerful. <laughs> I'm just not that powerful. <laughs> I haven't created mental osmosis from page to brain. So, um, but anyways, if you go through the book, just remember when you buy it, it's your book. So I want you to use it in a way that works for you. I have lots of exercises and things that you can do. If you're not into doing those things, don't let it stress you out. Um, people read the book. And it's just like this idea. If I have an idea, no, if I have an apple and you have an apple and we trade apples, Karen, how many apples do each of us have? We each have one. Exactly. We started with one and we ended with one. Right. The beautiful thing about ideas, if you have an idea and I have an idea and we exchange ideas, how many ideas do we have? Well, actually, now we have two because I have the one that I had that I shared with you, but now I have yours as well. Exactly. So this is something that is limitless, right? We can have these ideas that come to us. And if we can get one idea that makes our life just a little bit better from reading a book or listening to a podcast or whatever positive things we're trying to do in our life, we are in fact better off. And the cost of a book or, I mean, the podcast is free, right? So, I mean, Absolutely. you know, that's a value. There's a bargain for you. But anyways, so the book is on Amazon. It's on paperback. It's on ebook, whichever way you like. And I just published the audiobook. So the audiobook's on Audible. It's on Amazon and it's on iTunes. And then um, you can find my website. It's simply my name, www.davidredwards.com. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook. And the name of the book for those of us we're watching. There you go. It's called New You, Who Knew? I love that. New You, Who Knew? Yeah. Uh, you know, it just reminds me of so many things that I have done in the last 10 years of my life um, that our age has nothing to do with how successful we can be. And success is not always measured in the things that we have. Um, in fact, I sometimes tease my husband. Uh, we share this office studio and um, we have piles of stuff all around us. And, uh, but once a week I'll go through my piles and basically shred them all. And his piles are still a little messy. And I'll say to him, what are you keeping all that for? He's, you never know, I might need it. And it's like, okay, I'm one of those people that if I haven't worn a piece of clothing for one season, it's out of my closet. Yeah, but, good for you. you know, we're all a little bit different, like you said in the beginning, but we all have a lot of commonalities. And I think if we read David's book, we find a purpose for ourselves. I think our world is going to be a much happier place. 
because Absolutely. we can't blame it on everybody else. Our unhappiness comes from within. It does. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And, and you shouldn't feel badly about it. If you just don't feel like I, I just don't have that. I don't get it right. Don't feel badly. I mean, that's chapter eight of the book. If you want to buy the book and read about that, you'll find out about it, but don't feel badly because when you feel badly and you start beating yourself up, this is what the science tells us. We in fact lessen our capacity to deal with the very thing that we were feeling badly about. But when we give ourselves a break and it feels, you know, sometimes it just because the way we were raised, it feels like we're, you know, we're letting ourselves off the hook or something and we shouldn't do that, right? But the fact is when we're just a little more kind to ourselves, we actually increase the capacity to deal successfully with that very thing. So do you wanna be less successful, effective or more, right? And it's a fairly simple thing, but we just don't, right? It's an idea that we've just never come across before. So anyways, there's this kind of ideas. If you can find one of those, it's going to be a blessing in your life. How and wonderful. I hope it is. Well, I encourage you all to read the show notes because if you forgot how to get to the website or the name of the book, it will be in the show notes. So no excuse. And uh, after many of us have read the book, uh, we'll have to have you back on, David, so we can actually talk to you about those 10 principles. I love That'd it. That'd be awesome. Have a I'd great day. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye now. Bye-bye.